So uh, this morning we're looking at the part of Nehemiah where the wall is rebuilt. Woohoo! Praise God! The wall's rebuilt. I wouldn't get too excited if I'm honest, but that, yeah, the, the wall is rebuilt. But it is, it is the part of the story where we feel like we can say job done. And uh, we all like saying job done, don't we? We love, love that sense of accomplishment, that sense that something has been done. So I want us to start our journey this morning in Nehemiah 6.15. I'm reading from the New Living Translation and it says these words. On October the 2nd, you can cheer again. The war was finished. Woo! Just 52 days after we had, what a great job, 52 days after we had begun. So here's that confirmation, 52 days. So it started in my reckoning sometime around mid-August. Um, I don't know, my calculations in great, 10th of August maybe. October 2nd, it says job done. And then we see in the following verse, verse 16, that this is a job that others are in awe of. It says, when our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. So not only have you accomplished something, but others around you recognize what you've accomplished. That is a, a wonderful feeling. It must be a really good feeling. And some of you may know that feeling. You may say, yeah, this job's been complete. And others say, well done. What a great job. Um, <laughs> but we read on. And we do have to ask the question, was the job really done? Was the job really finished? Well, to help us with that, I'm going to focus this morning on Nehemiah 8. As you might know, if you've followed Nehemiah and you've read Nehemiah, it's a great passage and it's a great chapter. But I want us actually to skip forward to Nehemiah 9, verse 34 to 37. And again, I want to read from the NLT. And it says these words in Nehemiah 9, 34. Our king's leaders, priests and ancestors did not obey your law. Or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though they showered your goodness, though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. So now today we are slaves in the land of plenty that you gave our ancestors for their enjoyment. We are slaves here in this good land. The lush produce of this land piles up in the hands of the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They've power over us and our livestock. We serve them at their pleasure and we are in great misery. That to me doesn't sound much like job done. So at the beginning of chapter 9, let's just go back to the beginning. This is the 31st of October. And here we have the reading of God's word. We have praise. We have confession. But we have an admittance that actually things have got to a state of being completely rock bottom. They find all this work, all this accomplishment has actually led them to great misery and distress. And where has that misery come from? Well, actually, again, I think chapter 9 gives us clues. There's confession to God. This is God laying, uh, this is, sorry, God's people laying their sins before God. And at the root of their sin was the actual fact that they had forgotten God. They'd forgotten their native language, yes. They'd forgotten their spiritual heritage, yes, but actually the root of it all was they'd forgotten God. So even at this point of completion, even at this point of accomplishment, it's pretty clear that God's people were not at the top of their game. They'd actually hit rock bottom. And actually that's a real eye-opener for us and our lives as Christians today. There are lots of people, particularly ambitious people and driven people, who tend to measure their life on what's been accomplished in their life, on their accomplishments. And a lot of people will say, hey, look, look at what I've done. 
Look at how significant I am. It's because of what, I, what I've done. And it's a temptation that many of us face. But something happens to me personally um, when I get to that point that I feel I might have done something of significance. And that point usually comes when I'm on my knees in prayer and God gives me a revelation. I'm in the presence of the Lord. And because I'm in his presence, I recognize who God is. And I recognize there is nothing that I can do that can be of significance to God. Nothing. Nothing compares to our Lord. Not a single accomplishment, not, a, not anything of significance. Now, this seems really quite harsh words. Some of you work so hard in this place. You are so faithful, so given to what the Lord has given you. And so wonderful. And I love you. You, you are amazing, church. And these words are harsh words. But there is nothing that we can do of significance. And I tell you, that is a place of freedom this morning. To know there is nothing that we can do. Even if I were to replicate something of what spiritual giants like Moody or, or Booths or Corrie Ten Boom or anybody you can mention. If I could even replicate anything of what they do, I could not get anywhere close to Jesus. Because when we are in God's presence, our life is not about accomplished tasks. Our life is based on knowing at all times that we are simply God's pleasure. Hallelujah. We are God's pleasure. That he made us. That he loves us. That it's described, the prophet Zephaniah describes it wonderfully, that he sings over us. Zephaniah 3.17 reminds us of that, that we need to know that. When we hit rock bottom, and all of us have hit rock bottom at some point, okay? You can measure our life, and there will be some point. And actually, right now, it may be that you feel like you are at the rock bottom. You may be feeling like you've had a tough moment like no other, a tough season like no other. And you may feel low. But let me tell you, when you are at your lowest, the message of salvation is at its most powerful there are times when we experience valleys and deserts and they are hard, but God's ability to bring us out of the deepest pit. Wow, what a powerful God we serve. What a salvation message we have. Out of the clay, out of the miry pit, we are lifted out and God puts a new song of salvation in our heart and we can sing in some of those songs this morning. They are powerful songs. And he brings joy into our lives. You probably know where I'm going if you know where Nehemiah 8 is about, but joy in our lives. Now, we love quoting a verse from Nehemiah 8. We just like quoting the end of it, but Nehemiah 8 verse 10, and they've probably got the whole verse up here, but I am going to quote just the end of it, but I will come back. We love this, don't we? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Hallelujah. Let's declare that, shall we? That the joy of the Lord is is our strength. The fact that he sings over us, the fact that he rejoices over us, that is wonderful. But this, my friends, is the starting point of our Christian life and our walk. This is the starting point of our rebuilding efforts. Not the end, not even after we may have accomplished something. This is the beginning. Now, I believe here we are seeking to build a community of discipleship. And that basically means a community of people growing in God, in faith, in maturity. And we are, I believe, we're, we want, and I want to see this happen, that we are at least helping one other person grow 
to be a disciple, and we've got one other person helping us to grow as a disciple. I believe that's something we, be, we should and are and will be doing more of as we move forward. I believe we're building a community of mission. You know, we're reminded this community that we are in is not for our own benefit. We're building something that benefits all of us, including those who don't identify yet as being part of this church. And out of that community of mission, I think there'll be communities of work and communities of business and communities of compassion and all sorts of communities. Praise God. Communities of generosity, communities of sharing, which I really hope involves food. I really want those communities in our church. Effectively, we are a community of people that Jesus loves and we are called to love as Jesus loves. But the first community we have to build is a community of prayer. That is the first community because it is simply the place where we experience the presence of the Lord. And in that presence, we know he's rejoicing over us. In that presence, we know that he is singing over us. And in that presence, we can truly know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that is why we need to begin in that place. And all of us here, whether we feel we've done some good things, some great things for God, or actually whether we feel we've not accomplished much in our life, we come back to this place. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And that truth is the beginning. That truth wasn't the end for Israel, wasn't the end for Nehemiah. There was and there still is so much to be done. And as you look through this passage, this completion of the wall in Nehemiah 6, right through to that prayer of confession, of being rock bottom in Nehemiah 9, this, pas- this verse, Nehemiah 8:10, pretty much in the middle of all that, is like the anchor of those passages. The joy of the Lord is our strength and it's our anchor in our accomplishments, but it's our anchor in our weaknesses and our failures too. It's the anchor when we confess. Just go to the end of Nehemiah 7, just through to the beginning then of Nehemiah 8. I'll start Nehemiah 7, verse 73. It says, So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and some of the common people settled near Jerusalem. The rest of the people returned to their own towns throughout Israel. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord, the Lord had given for Israel to, to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. And he faced a square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. And all the people listened closely to the book of the law. So here are the people gathered together, listening to the word of God for far longer than I'm going to talk. You'll be glad maybe to know. But they listen closely. New King James describes it as people were attentive. Now, if someone's attentive, it means they aren't just listening. They're paying attention. They're taking it all in. If someone's attentive to you, if you said, you know, on a Google review and you went to a restaurant and said, oh, the 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 waiters and they were so attentive That's a positive thing. They are looking after you. They are making sure that you are looked after. They are looking out for your every need. And that's what we are. The word of God, these people were attentive, listening with intention, concentrating, ready to serve God and to serve others. And then in verse 5 and 6, and I'll, I'll stick with the New Living Translation, although I do like the word attentive better than listen closely. But anyway, it is New Living is a very, very readable version. It's got higher accuracy than most. And in verse 5 and 6, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people 
And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is a people attentive to the word of God, concentrating, listening closely, making it happen. What else happened? They worshipped. The word of God brought them to worship. Now, I'm missing out a few verses here. I'm missing out some names. Let's just call them the people of, of the Lord, because there's lots of names in there. And then verse 8 says, they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. So here they get to a point where people are, are understanding the Bible is, is, is relevant to their life. Now, we use the word relevant a lot, and we, we tend to think the word relevant is about being trendy. It's not about being trendy. The word relevant means it actually means something in your life. Yeah, and New King James, again, another interesting word, calls it reading distinctly. There's something distinctive about this word that is for you and for your life. It has purpose. It has meaning. It's relevant. You're part of this story. We talked about that when we did the Bible series. You are part of the story of God. You have a part to play. This book isn't just relevant. It is relevant, yes. It is distinctive, yes. But it's our story. We're part of this. And Israel knew that. And they were experiencing the story themselves. They were experiencing the power and presence of God themselves. They were doing the work of God themselves. It was relevant because they were part of it. And as we take part in this book, as we partake, as it becomes relevant in our life, then our life starts to make sense because of this book. Yeah, the Israelites were part of a story, and yes, they were part of a story that included oppression, included poverty and near destruction. And some of you, those words will mean something right now. You may, you may feel like you're oppressed. You need to be set free. Well, this story tells us, yes, we face oppression, but we have freedom. You may feel like, oh, I'm so poor. I have nothing. I have no resources, nothing to offer. Yes, this book reminds us that we have nothing to offer but that we have the riches of God. And yeah, I've experienced grief. I know grief. All in this room know and experience right now grief. All of us experience some form of loss. This book tells me that I will be part of something where I will know loss, where I will know grief. But the joy of the Lord is my strength. We've been oppressed. The enemy has sought to destroy We've been poor. We've felt like we've had nothing. We've experienced grief. But this is a story where despite all that, despite all that loss, despite that near destruction, despite that oppression, God turns our mourning into dancing. Hallelujah. You know, Jeremiah prophesies that this destruction, he tells them about their destruction, they're going to suffer. But in that same prophecy, he says in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, tears of joy will stream down their face. And I will lead them home with great care. They will walk beside quiet streams and on smooth paths where they will not stumble. For I am Israel's father and Ephraim is my oldest child. And then later on, verse 24 and 25, townspeople and farmers and shepherds alike will live together in peace and happiness. For I have given rest to the weary, and joy to the sorrowing. 
up. He promises them that God is going to bring them from a land of captivity. And he describes how they're going to return. They're going to walk by rivers of water. They will not stumble. And the Israelites are experiencing something of the joy of the Lord, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy. They're experiencing the relevancy of this message. They're experiencing that fact that joy of the Lord is their strength. And we may come to the Lord like Israel with, in a position of oppression, in a position of grief, in a position of poverty. But actually the Lord says, yeah, come as you are. Come as you are. We may come like the Israelites, a place of chaos. Let's be honest, a place of mess. A place where life looked like it was a complete shambles. They came with their sin. They came with their confession. They came in their state of feeling like they were rock bottom. And we may feel this morning we've come into a state like that. And what does the Lord say? What does the Lord say? Actually, I'm going to start with what the Lord doesn't say. He doesn't say, I told you so. He doesn't come along and point at you and say, I told you so. He doesn't come along and say, hey, you should have known better. You should have known better. He doesn't say, look at what mess your life is in. The next time, you've got to do better next time. He doesn't say any of that at all. God is not in a habit of doing that. Molly described this as an age of grace. We are in an age of grace. God does not come in an age of grace and say, I told you so. What's the word of God for them in this season? What does the Lord say? The Lord says these words. <laughs> and if you're experiencing, I just want to say, if you're experiencing a grief right now, if you're experiencing a loss right now, it's real. I'm not going to say it's not real. But this type of grief is grief over sin. Okay, I want to state that. It's grief over failure. It's grief over what we've not done or what we have done that has hurt God and hurt others. But if you come with that grief, this is what God says. And I'm going to read the whole of Nehemiah 8 verse 10. He says, go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared because this is a sacred day. This is the day of the Lord. We sang it very much at the beginning of our This is the day of the Lord. Don't be dejected and sad, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not, I told you so. It's come and eat. Come and feast. Come and enjoy. Come and taste the sweetest of wines. Now, I am not a wine drinker, but I know Jesus turns water into wine, and he doesn't turn water into cheap wine. He turns water into the best wine. And he's saying, come, drink, come, feast, come, be in my presence. Because this is a special, sacred day. And when we come with our sin, what does God do? He responds with his goodness. He responds with feasting. This is a special day. It was a day not of good fortune, not of good luck. It was the day of the Lord and we are living today in the day of the Lord. We are not going to mourn or weep. Yes, we have our griefs and our losses, but we are not going to mourn and weep over our sin. We are not. This is a special day. You know, the Jews were not the only ones celebrating. There was a celebration in heaven. 
the angels in heaven were gathered around rejoicing. They were there. The joy of the Lord. Not our joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength. So where do we see the Lord being joyful? Let me give you one clear example. Gospel of Luke chapter 15 verse 1 to 7 reads this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. They made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Well, we know he does that because we've just talked about him feasting. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? When he leaves the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because they have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. The people were told, do not grieve, rejoice. They were rejoicing with the Lord because the lost had found their way. Because salvation had come, there's joy in heaven. Now, we've talked a fair amount, haven't we, about our church going through a season of loss and a season of grief. And we've had lots of grief and lots of loss. And it's a very necessary emotion. I do not want to negate the emotion of grief. I think grief can help us at times when we mourn. Last week was Father's Day, and I don't expect everybody to rejoice that it was Father's Day. There'll be grief on that day over what's been lost, over what could have been, or what should have been. But we come this morning rejoicing in the Lord. We do rejoice in his Father heart for us. Yes, we grieve over loved ones. We grieve over missed opportunities. We grieve over lost friendships and lost connections. They are all valid things to grieve over. But as I said, I implore you, do not grieve over your sin or over your failure. When you bring it to the Lord, when you confess to him, when you say, Lord, I have messed up, he sends food and feast and joy and hope. There is no need. There's no need to grieve over where you have been. Let's rejoice in where we are right now and where we are going. And it starts here. It starts on this sacred day. The most sacred day is that day when a person weeps because they realize this relevant, distinct, important message. The word of God has become known to them. And we weep, of course, over our sin. When we start, we weep, we sorrow. They're real emotions. But when we come into the Lord's presence, we say, Lord, they are no more. You've made a way. Weeping comes in the night. Joy comes in the morning. We've, we've sung it this morning, haven't we? We declare it. I'm trading my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. His anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Hallelujah. Now, joy comes when we realize that when we try and put our lives together, it's just going to go wrong. Let me just try and say that right. If you're going to put your life together and try all sorts of self-help or whatever to do that, it ain't going to happen. It's going to go wrong. But when you allow God to rebuild through his word, that is where joy is going to come. And the people in Nehemiah's time were discovering, as Ezra read out the law, that it was time not only to rebuild walls, We've done that, but it was time to rebuild their lives. And that this rebuilding was focused on the word of God. When it's opened up and understood, 
we begin to understand who we are. And it begins as we discover that all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, training us to do the good and the right thing that this world and we so desperately need so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. That's where joy is going to be found. It's going to be found in our turning around. The design of God's word to train and equip us for what's right so that we might have and we might build a good life, a good place, a good community. We may build a church around the goodness and the generosity of God. And as I said, it starts as we pray, as we enter into the prayer and presence of God, then all those things will happen. Hallelujah. Discipling will happen. You know, if you don't understand the, the word discipling, I'm, it's, it's a term that gets used a lot. But to be discipled, I think, is about saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus. But in following Jesus, I'm taking up my cross. I'm giving up my rights. I want to grow and mature in faith. I want Christ to dwell in me with all his fullness to maturity. And it starts when I turn around, as Claudia and Molly have emphasized in the last couple of weeks, that word repentance, we are turned around and saying, Lord, our life is not our own anymore. It is your life. We're giving up our life and we're saying yes, Lord, to you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, when we turn to God, and I know this in my life and maybe you know this too, when we turn to God, we realize how empty our life was before. When we want the fullness of God, we turn to him. There was a void and emptiness in Israel's life, and that emptiness wasn't going to be filled by bricks or mortar. They needed the word of God. Ezra kept reminding them they needed the word of God. He read the word of God day after day. And actually, we do then see in their mind nine that the feasting becomes fasting. They give up. They say, yes, Lord, we need to serve you. We need to give of our lives to you. We understand that the terrible place that we've been, but we turn around to you because this message is so joyous that actually we're prepared to take up our cross. Yes, we're prepared to feast, but we're also prepared to fast. So I just want to remind you again, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not our joy, his joy. He rejoices over the one who turns around. It's his rejoicing that gives us reason to rejoice. It's his joy that fills us with hope. It's his joy that saves us as we are in spite of everything, in spite of where we have been. It's God's joy that puts you back on your feet and strengthens you. And we need this strength today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to finally read from Micah verse 4. I'm going to finish, and if the music team can come up, that'll be great. And as they start to play, if you do, can go and get your children. As they start to play, don't quite go, yeah, I want to read this scripture first. This was a sacred day. This was the prophet Micah on a sacred day saying these words from chapter 4, verse 2 of Micah. He says, people from many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. We are coming to the mountain of the Lord. We're coming into his presence. 
We're coming, yes, to experience the joy of the Lord, but we're coming also to let the Lord teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. And then what will happen? That teaching will go out from here, from Smedic, not just Zion, from this church. His word will go out because we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. It starts in his presence. It starts by knowing that his joy is your strength, that Jesus has overcome, that there is singing over your life. Hallelujah. Not because of any accomplishment, because Jesus simply loves you. And it's time to turn. It's time to say yes, Lord. Time to say that moment of grief has gone. That moment of grief over your sin and failure has gone in the name of Jesus. That moment of anger has passed in the name of Jesus. The nighttime has gone in the name of Jesus. The morning has gone in the name of Jesus. The joy has come. Hallelujah. There is a new morning, a different type of morning without the letter U. A new morning, a new dawn of grace and hope for you this morning. Hallelujah.